I think it's really important for commercial operators to consider the risk of providing data to the U.S. military government. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. Uh, often that is the most reliable and steady business that they are going to get. But in the design and construct of their satellites, there are several ways to better protect your satellites from attack. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Welcome back to The Downlink. As Russia and NATO trade lists of demands to de-escalate tensions along the Ukraine-Russia border, one thing is certain, that in addition to the U.S. military's spy satellites, those U.S. commercial satellite operators that specialize in Earth observation are also keeping watch over what's happening on the ground. Their images show the Russian troop buildup is continuing. Some media outlets are reporting as many as 175,000 may be in position and poised to invade Ukraine in January. What's not so certain is whether Russia will target U.S. satellites if it does invade. That was the underlying threat Russia made when it tested its anti-satellite weapon system in November. In conflicts, belligerents, in this case nations, are supposed to only target military facilities, equipment, or personnel. So where does that leave civilian-owned U.S. satellites, specifically the ones that provide services to the Department of Defense? Are they at risk? To find the answer, I wanted to start with a legal foundation. So I spoke with international and defense law expert David Koplow. Hi, David. Thank you for joining me on The Downlink. Well, it's great to be with you. You're teaching fine young minds at one of the nation's top law schools, but you've also had stints in public service. Tell us about yourself. Well, thank you. Um, yes, my, my, my real job is teaching at the Georgetown Law School. And here I teach courses on international law and national security law. And during my time at Georgetown and before coming here, I also served in the U.S. government. Most recently, I've had a couple of two-year stints working in the Department of Defense. One as a deputy general counsel for international affairs, and one as a special counsel for arms control to the general counsel of the Department of Defense. And then more recently, I've been working as a consultant to NASA on some of their space projects as well. I've reached out to you to speak about the legal position of commercial satellite operators, the ones that provide services to the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies. And just for the audience's reference, these services can include communications, earth observations, space situational awareness, payload hosting, probably more. I want to understand, especially in the current context of last month's Russian ASAT test, plus uh, Russian state-owned media has been beating a drum about shooting down U.S. or allied satellites should the West cross a quote-unquote red line. What are the rules? Is a commercial satellite provider that provides services to a military, doesn't matter whether it's ours, military, or, or the U.K. Or, or whatever, are those satellite operators and their space-based assets, are they fair targets? Well, let me begin by saying that I'm really glad that you're focused on this issue. 
and that your reader, your, your listeners will be paying attention to this because this is a very complicated and fast moving area where law and practice are evolving very rapidly. So to help spin it out, let me begin by identifying that there are two bodies of law that are in play here. One is the law of outer space. And sometimes people giggle about that, but there is in fact a corpus of international law based in a number of treaties that have been joined by most of the countries that are active in space. And it is very incomplete. It's not nearly as dense as the law should be, but there is law of outer space. The second area of law that's relevant here is the law of armed conflict, the body of international law, again, treaties and customary law that regulates, attempts to regulate, the conduct of of armed conflict. Uh, And here we're beginning to see for the first time the intersection of those two bodies of law, the law of outer space and the law of armed conflict. So the starting point for this is that under the law of armed conflict, one of the cardinal principles is discrimination or distinction. And that is that in making an armed attack, a military is allowed, is authorized, only to attack the opposing military, to attack, attack military objectives. And it's forbidden to make civilians or civilian objects the target of an attack. That's familiar, well-established, long-standing law of armed conflict, and it would apply in outer space as well. So the first step is to say that if there is truly a civilian object in outer space, a satellite that's owned and operated by civilians and is serving entirely civilian functions, that cannot be lawfully targeted during a time of armed conflict by an opposing military. That's the first principle. Associated with that, however, is that the civilian person or object loses that protection if they turn to performing military services. If a civilian person or a civilian object on Earth or a civilian satellite in outer space is serving military purposes, military or intelligence community purposes, by providing the kinds of support that you are identifying, principally Earth resources monitoring, communications. If the civilian-owned and operated satellite is now turning toward military operations, then it becomes a legitimate military objective and is subject to attack by by a foreign military during a time of armed conflict. So each satellite owner and operator has to make a hard choice as to whether they would intend to remain entirely civilian in nature and, and character and operation and enjoy the immunity from an attack, or whether in pursuit of commercial advantage, they're willing, they're eager to take to to contract with the military or their intelligence community, making money profitably during peacetime, but becoming military objectives subject to attack during a time of armed conflict. So now that that's pretty clear, that if you are a satellite operator and provide services to the military, or the intelligence community that you are fair game as a target, does the military have any responsibility to that commercial service provider if they are targeted? Well, the the function of the military in space as on the ground is to protect the country. And that includes protecting civilians and civilian assets, civilian objects, but not 
necessarily directly, not necessarily immediately, not necessarily comprehensively. And in space, of course, the problem of defense is even more complicated because as a practical reality, it's very difficult to defend a satellite. Satellites, whether they are commercial or military or intelligence community or anything else, satellites are inherently vulnerable targets. They are light, that is unshielded. Most of them have very limited maneuver capability. It's not like a battleship or a tank or a fort that can be surrounded with heavy armor and and the ability to shoot back and defend it in that way. Satellites are just not capable of that kind of, of operation. So the duty of the military in a time of armed conflict to defend America and its interests is harder to apply to a satellite because they are inherently vulnerable in a situation like outer space where the offense seems to have a built-in advantage over the defense. Would a commercial satellite operator have any recourse in international law? Would they, if they were you know, targeted, I mean, would they have the possibility of getting any sort of recompense from the nation state or even another organization that may be attacking them? Because it might not be a nation state. It could be a group, like a cyber attack even. How does that work or does it even work? Is there anything there? Well, well, let's separate that into two scenarios, one during peacetime and the other during a time of armed conflict. Start with peacetime, since that's where we mostly are. During peacetime, outer space law does have a treaty dealing with liability for tort damage, for harm that's inflicted upon somebody else's satellite. It's actually quite a remarkable regime. One of the first space treaties was constructed to deal with the question of what happens if there's an accident, if something goes wrong in outer space. Space is tremendously important and valuable, but it's also a very difficult operating regime. uh, And and activities there are regarded as ultra-hazardous, So the drafters of the treaty uh, noted that we ought to deal with the possibility of harm inflicted by one country's space activities. And remarkably, this treaty sets out two different regimes. One is, if there's harm done by my space activities on your territory, on land, if one of my satellites crashes into your territory and damages buildings or people there, The other kind of regime is what happens in outer space. If one of my satellites crashes into one of your satellites accidentally during peacetime and damages it in outer space. And the rules established by this treaty that's been joined by almost all the spacefaring countries, the rules are quite different. If I crash, and I should say quite different, and not all that precisely defined. The treaty was drafted a long time ago. It did not have the benefit of modern drafting techniques of laying things out in great detail. And fortunately, we've not had much experience with this. There have not been, over the last several decades, very many instances where a satellite did crash into somebody else's territory or where a satellite did crash into somebody else's satellites. We haven't got much experience in operating these treaties. But the principles are nonetheless clear. If my satellite crashes into your land territory or hits one of your airplanes in flight, I have what's referred to as absolute liability. I have complete responsibility to compensate you for all harm 
regardless of whether I was negligent or not, whether I was at fault or not, it's absolute liability for damage done by my satellite crashing into your land territory. For damage done in outer space, it's a different regime, and there I have liability if I have been negligent or at fault. If I've behaved in a completely uh, state-of-the-art fashion, uh, operating in good faith and, and with due care, and unfortunately, my satellite bonks into yours, there's no liability. Liability for a collision in space only if there is fault. That's the rule for peacetime. During wartime, none of that would apply. And if in wartime, country A deliberately targets country B's satellites as part of the war fighting operation, too bad for country B, and the satellites that get damaged as part of the war fighting effort, that's just one of the consequences of, of hostilities. And the civilian who happens to own the satellite that gets damaged as a part of a legitimate war fighting activity is just out of luck. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been a great pleasure being with you. Risk is something quantifiable, at least in terms of dollars and cents, especially to space business investors. And in the documentation for publicly traded space companies, you can sometimes see whether a company has a budget line for insurance to cover business assets. Most businesses have some form of insurance cover for the equipment they use to produce their product or services. A bakery will have insurance for ovens and mixers. A farm will have insurance for tractors and silos. Space is, well, super risky. And it's because of that risk that most, but not all, satellite operators do not have insurance for their space-based assets. Last week, I interviewed Matt Desch of Iridium. His company provides communication services to the DOD, and he told me his company self-insures its satellites. But is that changing? What does a standard satellite insurance policy cover? And in light of last month's Russian ASAT test, are satellite operators looking for war or terrorism coverage? I contacted a number of satellite operators to see if they not only had insurance coverage, but if they had war or terrorism coverage. I received nice notes back from the media reps, but no one was willing to talk about it. Of note, the United States Space Force does require some satellite operators it contracts with to purchase insurance cover, but what for exactly was not made clear to me. So I spoke with a space insurance specialist, Chris Kunstadter. He's been in the space and satellite insurance business for three decades. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on the downlink. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. I hate to admit this, but I'm pretty sure that my audience may be in the same boat with me when I say that beyond my home and my four wheels, I don't know much about insuring space vehicles, or should I say instead spacecraft. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? your company, you know, how did you even get into writing insurance policies for spacecraft? Yeah, thanks, Laura. Um, uh, so I'm Chris Kunstadter. I'm the global head of space for AXA XL, a large multinational insurance company. We insure all types of risks uh, around the globe, including space risks. And I manage the group that, uh, that handles all the space risks that we write. Um, I've been doing this for uh, over three decades, 
And I uh, got into it through aviation. I was a pilot and a flight instructor and a charter pilot, but I was interested in the business of aviation. So I got into that for a little while, and then I got into the, the insurance of aviation and then the insurance of space. And that was a long time ago. Um, it, it's a great job. I, I love what I do because I get to see so many new and interesting technologies and work with some really, really smart people uh, every day. And I really, I really appreciate that. Could you give us the 101 short course, if you will, on satellite insurance? Now, who's your typical customer who buys it and what's it actually for? How does it fit into and support the satellite value chain? Yeah, good question. So our insurance covers all physical risk of loss. In other words, anything that can happen to the physical asset that we're insuring from launch onwards through the life of a satellite. So we insure the launch vehicle flight, which can take anywhere from 10 minutes to 10 hours. We insure the initial operations of the, of the satellite once it's deployed in space. We insure the operational life in annual uh, policies out to the end of life of the satellite. So we take all the physical risk of loss. In other words, if there's a breakdown of a component on the satellite, if, there's a, if it gets hit by a micrometeoroid, um, what have you, any sort of physical damage to the satellite. We do exclude um, some things that are standard exclusions in insurance policies. So we exclude war, we exclude cyber, we exclude terrorism, but essentially everything else is covered. And our clients are typically satellite owners and operators, but we also insure launch providers. We insure um, operators of other types of space platforms, experiments on the ISS and what have you. So really anything, any sort of risk that takes place from ignition of the rocket um, through the, the life of whatever the space vehicle is. As I said, we typically insure satellite owners um, because they have this asset that's able to produce significant revenue over its life. And they want to be able to protect that revenue generating capability through insuring the asset itself. If there is a loss, if there's a failure, then the money that we would pay them as a claim, they could use to buy a new satellite and launch it and insure it. I'd imagine it must be pretty expensive. What goes into actually tabulating the cost of a policy? And, and can you give me an example? So space insurance is, it's a very, um, the risk is very high. The frequency of losses is low. There aren't that many losses, but then again, there aren't that many events. So it's a very volatile line of business. And as a result, you know, the prices are higher than, than for many other types of, of insurance. But we really address the issue of determining risk by trying to find a solution for every risk that we're presented with. We embrace risk. We want to find ways to innovate and come up with new products. And in doing so, we will first assess, say, the launch vehicle, the rocket. What's its history? Uh, who's manufacturing it? Who's, what upgrades have been made? Uh, what's the mission that it's trying to fulfill in this case? Uh, likewise, on the satellite, we will look at the manufacturer, the operator, their experience, how they've uh, designed the system, what sort of redundancy is, is built into the system, 
how much um, margin they have on their budgets, what sort of new technologies they have, and so on. There are a lot of very, um, <coughs> excuse me, there are a lot of very uh, specific things that we look at. Uh, it's almost like a design review. We go through essentially a design review for the major programs that we write because we want to understand what can go wrong. And really, it's the experience of, of um, my team, the, the years of experience, the decades of experience that they have that, um, that allows them and me to work together to try and figure out what could go wrong. That's really what we're trying to do is figure out what could go wrong. It's important to understand that we are not insuring against things that we know are going to happen. We're really insuring against things that are unexpected. The, the term in insurance parlance is fortuity. Insurance re relies on fortuity. The event of a loss has to be unexpected. The, what that means is we know that there have been failures in the past on a particular system, and we know those failures have usually been corrected. So we're not looking at those prior failures as the, um, the bounding cases for our, our analysis, we're really then looking at the whole system to see what else could go wrong. What are the other things that we need to be careful of? So it's a very detailed um, analysis. We spend a lot of time doing it. There's also the fact that, you know, we've ensured first launches of new launch vehicles. We've ensured first launches of new types of satellites. And we're not, you know, we don't shy away from those. We recognize the risk is definitely higher and we price for that. But just as with your car insurance, if you've never had an accident, your, your premium is not going to be zero. And if you've had uh, an accident recently or several accidents, then you are still going to be able to buy insurance at a reasonable price because we as an insurance company pool all the risks. So the pricing is compressed. The best risks pay too much. The worst risks pay too little. But in the end, everyone pays into the pot because no one knows who's really going to be uh, needing to take something out. Are there missions or satellites that are uninsurable? You know, we, we, we try to find ways to ensure every risk that we're presented with. We really do. So like I said, first launches don't bother us. First, uh, you know, new types of satellites, new technologies really don't bother us. There is a price to ensure any risk uh, in, in our realm. You know, we try to provide a uh, a service, a financial service that helps our um, our clients. You know, I like to say that space insurance is a critical enabler of innovation and investment. Without space insurance, a lot of these companies would not be able to raise money because the investors would be concerned about failure, and therefore they'd be uh, unable to innovate. I like to think that we support that innovation life cycle through offering our product. And therefore, we like to find a way to ensure anything that comes along. And now I want to sort of turn your attention to what is a sort of maybe not so new risk, but a certainly more visible risk. You know, since November, when Russia tested an anti-satellite weapon system on its own satellite, and that created 1,500 pieces of trackable debris, our government and the allies have been observing a huge buildup of Russian troops along the Ukraine border, and the number could be as high as 120,000, and they're not there for war games. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that when Vladimir Putin used that ASAT test, it, it was a warning to stay out of his way in Ukraine. 
What struck me, though, is that when I saw that Maxar Technologies provided news organizations with images of the troop buildup, was that Maxar has multiple contracts with the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies, as do other satellite operators. And I'm using Maxar as an example simply because I know that when one of its satellites stopped operating, it was insured and there was a payout. But what if a commercial satellite operator that provides services to the Department of Defense is targeted, you know, by a nation state or another bad guy? What happens? Is that an insurable type of event? What happens with that policy? Or does that get built in also into your construct of insurance that if, if an operator has a contract with the Department of Defense? So that's an interesting question and and there are a lot of levels there so first of all our insurance policies generally exclude war um, and by excluding war the, the wording of that exclusion is more detailed and specific but essentially if there were a warlike act by a state actor it could fall under that exclusion likewise with terrorism likewise with cyber another point to make is that satellites are targeted continuously by people trying to hack in and either take control or disrupt or what have you. And we recognize that most satellites are capable of dual use. In other words, uh, use, you know, usable for commercial and civil purposes and for, say, military communications, because communications is communications. So I think that there's always a possibility of having satellites be targeted for that reason. The one issue that we would face is attribution. How do we attribute the loss to a specific cause, say a, a state actor versus a micrometeorite? We would look long and hard at it and, and really you know, rely on, on, on working with the operator, the manufacturer, what have you, to make sure that we understand what happened. So we don't look at the risk of what we call war risks in space as a, um, as a serious problem today. It, it will be, and it is becoming more serious. Um, we do take it into account. We do ensure that we have ways of attributing anomalies to a particular cause. And in fact, we've, we've even had clients who have specifically bought insurance for the war risk. In other words, it was excluded in their policy. They wanted it insured, so they actually paid additional premium to have us provide that coverage. And that was, that was a need they had and uh, an underwriting decision that we made. So there will be warlike activity in space, just with everything that's going on. Now we have space designated as a warfighting domain. How does that affect your business? How does that affect a satellite operator's ability to, to attain insurance? What's, what's the path forward? So we look at the space industry today as being very, very different from what it was five, 10 years ago. We're dealing with very rapid change rapid change in technologies, rapid change in business models, increasing failures um, due to various causes and new threats from uh, inside and outside of satellites. As an insurance company, we need to be keenly aware of, of the risks that we're facing and not, and not ignore any of them. 
And so we work very closely with industry, with governments, with space agencies, and so on to foster safe and responsible space activity. We want to see um, space be safe and we want actors to be responsible. And so far we've seen that for the most part. But again, we have to keep our eyes open and make sure that we understand all the types of threats that, that we face and that our clients face so that either we can address them with insurance or we can address them through policy and, and, and other means. But we're, we're very proud to work in the space industry and to be a critical part of that industry. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you, Laura. Now, I'd love to take credit for the idea of this episode, but I can't. Have to give credit where credit is due. The idea, or perhaps better stated, the question of just what is the risk, financial and otherwise, to those commercial satellite operators that have DOD contracts, came out of a discussion with space and defense expert Caitlin Johnson. This is also about adult money. Billions in solicitations issued, millions, sometimes hundreds of millions for the contract awardee. After I spoke with David and Chris, I came back to Caitlin to see what her latest thinking was. Hi, Caitlin. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Laura. It's really great to be back. Could you take a moment and introduce yourself, what you do, and what you're researching? Sure. So uh, my name is Caitlin Johnson. I'm the deputy director and fellow of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, a DC-based think tank, where I work primarily on uh, space policy issues. I tend to focus on national security space. I dabble in commercial and civil space. And then occasionally I do some air work, uh, but really space is cool, you know? And um, I also am the host of a podcast myself. It's called Tech Unmanned. And we talk about the intersection of emerging technologies and national security. You know, you're the one who put me onto this subject of the possibility of increased risk to commercial satellite operators that provide services to the Department of Defense. And the timing to think about it seems appropriate as this week, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks visited Schreiber Space Force Base in Colorado and observed the space flag exercises, which even included Britain, Canada, and Australia. Now, this edition of Space Flag, which is a simulated space war game, focused on tactics to preserve satellite resiliency to threats from China and Russia, you know, jamming, spoofing. It included the potential shooting down of a U.S. missile tracking satellites. But what about the commercial satellites that provide services to the DOD? Can you explain what those services are and what you see as their potential risk? Sure. So I think what is important for your listeners to understand is that uh, commercial space providers have been providing capability to the U.S. government and the U.S. military for decades. However, there has been this increased conversation, and you can see the rhetoric coming out of the Department of Defense and the Space Force about how, and even NASA on the civil space side, about how the government can better leverage commercial capability to supplement what it already does. Um, and so this means procuring data from commercial satellites instead of owning and operating the satellites themselves. Um, so that's kind of the, the distinction there. And so we see this 
play out heavily in um, communications satellites. So whether that is communications in geostationary orbit or in low earth orbit. We also see this with a lot of uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance satellites, ISR satellites that provide optical or other signals intelligence to supplement what like the NRO, for example, has already. And this is an increased, increasingly important piece of the DOD space puzzle is to innovate, allow commercial industry to innovate and support commercial industry in the United States by purchasing this, the data as a service versus purchasing the product itself. Just in communications, the U.S. Space Force's Commercial Satellite Communications Office intends on awarding $2.3 billion over the next two years in contracts to commercial satellite operators, and in particular, businesses that already have satellite constellations in orbit and very particularly low Earth orbit. But here's the thing. Many low Earth orbit satellite operators are self-insured. If, say, Russia or China decide to not target the global positioning system satellites, as many nations depend on them, uh, but want to pick off something perhaps more low-hanging fruit instead, is it conceivable that an adversary would choose to target a U.S. commercial operator that provides services to the DOD? You know, would that come with fewer political ramifications? Perhaps. So I think... The example with GPS is a little apples and oranges just because there are no commercial services currently that provide the same like position navigation and timing data that GPS does. However, we do have other countries who have their own PNT systems like the Europeans have Galileo. What would be really interesting, just as an aside, is like if you did disrupt GPS, it would affect the military most greatly. But you and I and our phones will pick up other PNT signals. So like if GPS, if I can't get GPS on my phone, it will turn to and read Galileo. But the U.S. military does not have that capability to switch to even an allied partner's PNT system, which in my opinion is a bit of a mistake uh, as we continue to talk about resiliency. But to your original question, you know, I think it, it is a possibility that commercial services could be disrupted in the case of a conflict if they are providing that data to the U.S. government. And we are very transparent about how the U.S. government purchases and uses commercial capability and commercial data, especially in space. As you said, you just saw it in the budget. We see it in the NDA. We can track these things and so can you know, potential uh, adversaries in, the con- in a conflict. So I think as, as you kind of laid it out, an, an escalation strategy, I think it's up for the U.S. military and the Space Force to decide is an attack on a commercial service that provides that supplemental data to the United States military equal to an attack on a U.S. military system. Obviously, they're doing, they have both to increase this resiliency and limiting one will put more reliance on the other. And, and that's why they have both. But it is up to, I think, the government to decide of, of is that commercial capability worth going to war over type of question, which is, is scary and, and you know, not my purview, thankfully. But what should the United States Space Force do in handling its contracts with commercial space operators? 
knowing that they may not be insured and that they may actually become a target as they are possibly fair game under the international legal system. How should the United States Space Force approach their relationship with the commercial space sector? When it comes to insurance, you know, there are several challenges that are unique to space. First off, the way that space insurance has been developed is that usually the launch itself is insured, but not the satellite or its operation once on orbit. You know, space is still risky and space is extremely hard and things fail a lot, um, which is why the insurance industry, there's very few companies that actually insure satellites or space launch itself and why there are so many countries or companies that don't insure their satellites. And part of it is also that it's just so expensive. I mean, that could be sometimes that insurance cost could be a third of the cost of the entire mission itself, which is insane and just not sustainable for business practice. I think there are also some things we can take from what the U.S. military and the Space Forces perceives as its role in ensuring free and fair commercial operations in space. I think you can draw some similarities to the maritime domain and how the United States approaches international shipping and things like that, and how it is the military's mission to ensure that we have free and open and fair, you know, commercial shipping lines. And so I think there's some parallels there with space, but it's again, the insurance industry is really skewed in space in that it is very expensive and, and very uh, because it's not required, there are not a lot of companies both providing insurance or choosing to purchase it. So what do you think commercial satellite operators need to consider? I think it's really important for commercial operators to consider the risk of providing data to the U.S. military and government. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. Uh, often that is the most reliable and steady business that they are going to get. But in the design and construct of their satellites, there are several ways to better protect your satellites from attack. You can better encrypt your data and your communications and signaling. You can harden your satellite to make it more protected against radiation. You can distribute your architectures so that you have you know, what SpaceX is doing, for example, you have hundreds of the satellites that do the same thing that make up one capability versus having a couple big ones. These are the same problems that the U.S. military is grappling with as well. And I just don't know if it occurs to commercial companies to think of the way they design and execute their satellite in a national security context like the military thinks. But if you are intending to provide that data that is critical to a U.S. military mission, you might want to start considering better cybersecurity and better practices to secure your satellites and make sure they are less vulnerable in case of an attack, and, and especially if you're not insured. Thank you so much for your time, Caitlin. It's great to see you. And it's always great to talk with you, Laura. Thank you for having me on. That's it for this week's episode. And before I sign off, I want to thank Vaga Meradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor, and Chris Savello, our producer. You can subscribe to the downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and SoundCloud. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. <laughs>